Okay, so hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of Default Global. This is where we connect with global first entrepreneurs and remote work experts from all around the world to share their experiences. Our guest today is Ken Babcock, uh, co-founder and CEO at Tango. Uh, Ken, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So Ken, before we start, could you briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Ken, I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Tango. Um, we started Tango about three years ago. If you remember uh, what three years ago looked like, we were in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, companies were going remote, distributed for the first time. They were feeling a lot of pain of that. Uh, and they needed better solutions to share knowledge, uh, whether that was for new hires who were onboarding for the first time or whether that was employees leaving. Um, whether it was, you know, maybe a layoff or uh, they decided to resign, uh, how did you take that knowledge and actually transfer it across your company? And so we created Tango um, as a way to, to do that more effectively. And so what we do today is we automatically create how-to guides, SOPs, whatever you want to call them, in the flow of work. I think we've all been there where you're creating documentation, you're sitting in front of a Word document, you're pulling screenshots over from your, your downloads folder, you're cropping, you're editing, and you're like, holy cow, there's got to be a better way. So we so we built a better way to do that. Um, and it's been an amazing journey ever since. Um, before Tango, my founders and I, we were at Harvard Business School. That's how we met. Uh, we actually dropped out of business school during the pandemic to start Tango. Um, and most of my career before that, I spent at Uber in San Francisco, uh, held roles in data science, product, uh, launch, you name it. I, uh, I got I got quite a quite an experience there in four and a half years. Got it. So, and and maybe as someone who who dropped out of Harvard Business School to start Tango, right? Can you can you maybe go a bit deeper and tell us a bit more about Tango and maybe share some more about specific pain point you identify in this onboarding process that led you to the creation of your company can can we go a bit deeper there sure i mean startups are so much of it's about timing um and you know i think as an entrepreneur you know your skill set really needs to be um identifying when that time is right for an idea or, or a market and so um you know, part of dropping out was was that just we felt this pain point when we were talking to customers. I would say we started working on the idea, you know, maybe a couple of months before the pandemic came about. And, you know, when we talked to customers or potential customers, the reactions were, you know, still positive. I mean, people said, oh, yeah, like, we'd love to try it when it's ready. Let me know. Um, sounds interesting. Sure. Um, but not you know, sort of this overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, can you build this? Once the pandemic hit, once people had moved remote, distributed, the conversations that we were having all of a sudden shifted tone. It wasn't sort of this like, oh, supportive. Oh yeah, like happy to check it out. It was, we desperately need this and we need it yesterday. And so as an entrepreneur, what you need to say to yourself is, okay, if, if people are asking for it, we have to go build it now, right? And um, and so that that made the decision of dropping out a lot easier. Um, there's a great 
analogy. Uh, I actually just heard it. If you're familiar with Harry Stebbings, he's a podcast host. Um, he talked about entrepreneurship kind of needing three components. You need a great surfer. You know, that's let's call that the company. You need a great beach and great waves that day. Let's call that sort of the the market or the environmental factors. Um, and you need the right time. You need the right time of day. You're not going to surf at night, right? So the timing's got to be good. So that that timing piece is so critical. And and you know, for us, it just it sort of smacked us in the face. Yeah, and you know uh, there are there are a bunch of alternatives. In fact, to traditional documentation methods such as screen recording tools like maybe Loom, right? So I, I'm sure you're familiar with it. But how does Tango differentiate itself from from those tools? So we talk about this a lot, and you know we actually we actually use Loom internally as a company, and I think it all comes down to use case. Loom is great for replacing meetings, giving kind of a one-way update, something that, you know, might be, hey, a moment in time, ephemeral, that moment might pass, you're not going to revisit it later. When it comes to why you might use Tango over Loom, it's really about replicating process. If I'm a subject matter expert, I have a process that I follow, I need to share it with people on my team so they can follow. Loom is going to be really bad for that. People are going to be rewinding, pausing, you know, scrolling ahead to try to find like the, the little step that you know maybe they're missing. Um, and so we built a lot of the product around that idea that you know Loom is actually really challenging if you're trying to like replicate what someone has done. Whereas Tango, you know, we've almost gone back to basics and said the easiest way for you to replicate is going to be looking at descriptions, screenshots, URLs, and our new product guidance actually walks you through the process on your screen. So we will literally take over your screen and show you exactly where to click and where to go. Um, and so that fundamental belief that there was a gap around replicating process, that's ultimately what we lean into. That's also how we differentiate from, from screen recording tools. Got it. And throughout your, your, your career, uh, you've been involved in building and scaling I would say global companies, right? So, so in your experience, what are the key factors that contribute to successfully building a global first company? Can you talk a bit more about that? Yes, I got a crash course in this at Uber. So first team I was on at Uber was actually within our launch function. And the idea of the team that I was on, I was based in San Francisco, um, but our team in San Francisco was focused on how do we extract all the learnings from all these different markets that we were in? At that point, when I joined, it was 2014. We were in about 100 or so markets. Um, Uber would eventually be in like 700 markets. And so um, there was a lot of growth yet to go. And so the goal was, how do we synthesize everything that we've learned from those first 100 and apply it to the next wave of cities and the next wave of markets? And so a lot of that was figuring out you know, what is going to translate where, you know, if, if, if we did something in Dallas or Miami, is that actually going to work in Delhi or, uh, you know, in, in Indonesia, in Singapore? Like, I mean, there was just a lot of nuance to that. And so, you know, I think the, the, the challenge was always 
you know, how do you, how do you make these things fit? But what we did really effectively was we documented everything. We put it in a playbook. We established this like common language across the company for thinking about the business. And so when we'd go into a market, um, I actually remember we did this uh, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where, you know, we were setting up shop there. We had to hire all local talent. We had to onboard all local drivers, promote to, to local riders. And so everybody was sort of new to Uber there, but our team was sort of responsible with educating them on, hey, here's how you evaluate if things are going well. Here are the metrics that we care about. Here's how we talk about, you know, driver onboarding, or here's how we talk about rider engagement. These are sort of the goals. And so defining that common language as a company is so critical to scaling globally. I mean, we even had an acronym dictionary that we made for all of our launch markets. Hey, when we say, you know, uh, C to R ratio, that's completed to request for trips. Like that's, that's the level of detail that we got into just to make sure that people were successful. And, and uh, Tango has gained the significant traction since its launch, right? So it was over 200K users in just 15 months, right? How, how did you approach expanding your user base internationally? And what, what strategies did you find the, the most effective in capturing those new markets, those global new markets? Can you, can you, you yeah. know, go there? Yeah, so our, a lot of our, acquisition strategy centers around um, tapping into communities of people that care about productivity, care about efficiency, care about new tools, care about knowledge, documentation. And so, you know, I, I will sort of offer the disclaimer that we would love to be much more popular than we are internationally, even though we've, we've made a lot of efforts there. We, we want to grow bigger there. Um, But, you know, you said 200,000 in 15 months, you know, we've been live now for, you know, call it 19, 20 months and we're at 400,000. And so the growth just, just keeps going. Um, but, but coming back to that community strategy and, and how we've internationalized, we found those communities, those influencers, those newsletters within different countries. You know, we did a partnership, um, you know, with a really popular tech newsletter in Germany to, to just talk about Tango and how Tango could be useful. We started supporting more languages in the product. We started supporting Japanese characters, you know, after um, there was a Japanese blog that, you know, essentially the ethos was work smarter, not harder. That was sort of the topic of the blog. They wrote a huge piece about Tango and all of a sudden we had this inflow of Japanese users and we needed to support Japanese characters. And so, you know, there is some, there are some like tech enablement things that you need to do in order to go global. But when it comes to growing and acquiring users, treat it the same, you know, the same way as you would if you're just in the US. How do I find the right communities? How do I find the right customers? What's the correct persona? You're going to have to do that internationally too. And sometimes, you know, it's not going to feel like it's super scalable because you got to go into each market. But That's what we learned at Uber too. You have to have the boots on the ground. You have to put in the effort. Sometimes it's going to feel like, oh, this isn't as scalable as I'd want it to be. But um, you know, these are all each their own sort of unique communities. 
And as far as understood, Tanga's go-to-market motion has been focused mostly on this bottom-up adoption, right? So targeting yes. frontline employees who are, you know, who experience the pain point of creating these documentations and and so on. So I'm just curious, how did you identify the specific customer segment, and how did you tailor? your product and messaging to, to, to resonate with them. I guess that's pretty much the same strategy as like Slack did, right? So, but can you, can you, can you describe your way? How, how did you do, yeah. do that? Yes. And we are lucky to call Slack an investor in Tango. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff that we've learned from that team, but even before that, when we were talking to customers, when we were in our discovery phase, we had a prototype. We were not live yet. We would talk to both team leaders, team managers, and we would also talk to those frontline workers. And when we showed them the prototype and we talked about the pain point we were trying to solve, it resonated in seconds with the frontline workers. Team leaders would be like, oh yeah, you know, I, I think, yeah, my team does a lot of documentation. I'm not sure where it lives or how often they're doing it, but they're, yeah, they're doing it. Frontline workers were like, oh my gosh, if you do this, I get a day back per week. Or if you give me access to this product, like I'll use it tomorrow, right? And so that sort of helped us understand, okay, those are the people that we have to reach because they are gonna be our advocates internally for the whole company. And so, you know, part of our reason for going product-led was ultimately you know, those frontline workers are going to be the ones that feel this pain point most acutely. So all of our messaging was tailored towards the pain that they're experiencing, the solutions that they're looking for, but they don't have the old way of doing things. You know, I would, I would guess that if a buyer, you know, buyer team leader landed on our website, they'd probably look at it and be like, yeah, that's not for me. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I care that much about this. Whereas you know, the frontline worker, when they land on the website, they're like, where have you been all my life? And so that difference for us is what defined that product-led motion. Um, you yeah. know, is, is where did those pain points? Going yeah, sales-led just wouldn't have made sense. That's exactly what happened with me when I checked your website, you know. So, um, okay, let, let's talk about your team. So as, as a remote-first company, yeah, you, 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 you have this distributed team of how many? Like 70 full-time members? Across. Oh, not yet. We have 40, 41. Oh, 41. Sorry. Yeah. So c- could you maybe share some best practices in building this uh, remote team effectively? Yes. It is, it's challenging. You know, I think, I think a lot of people look at remote and they say, oh, you know, you can hire anywhere. You can save on office space. And, and that's true. Those are huge benefits. Um, but it places a much higher emphasis on communication and collaboration. And what I mean by that is you don't have people sitting next to each other. You don't have, you know, just sort of these like sporadic sort of lunch conversations or happy hour conversations. What the water cooler doesn't exist. And so communicating and figuring out ways to communicate effectively are really important. We have a set of norms that we've set up in Slack. Um, we also have like no meeting Thursdays, which you know Zoom meetings can kind of get cumbersome too when you're when you're remote. And so 
there's a lot of things that you have to think about in terms of how do we communicate? What's the right, you know, who's the decision maker in the room here? Um, you know, what are the key, you know, sort of takeaways from every meeting? I mean, we have a very extensive culture around communication. So that's the piece that we've had to, we've had to lean into a bunch. And then, you know, for our employees that are international, we have uh, folks in Australia, Brazil, Spain, Netherlands. Um, there's communication there too, where, you know, especially for the, for the areas where we, time zones don't overlap as much, we have to have like very clear handoff procedures, um, especially for the engineers that are in Spain and the Netherlands and our designer in Australia. It's got to be very clear. Hey, here's what, here's what our US-based team achieved today. Here's where we need your help. Here's what we're expecting by the time we come back. And so, yes, you have some of that like around the clock coverage, which there's value in, but you also need to make sure that, you know, both parts are going to have, have an opportunity to be successful. So at some point you decided to, that it might be a good idea to expand your hiring practices and include candidates from outside of the US, right? So can you talk more about this? What were the primary motivations uh, driving this decision? Yeah, you know, it, it, um, it wasn't so much cost. Um, I think a lot of people think about, oh, you know, if I can, if I can hire in different geographies, you know, maybe I'll be able to you know, uh, save some money on this hire versus this hire. It wasn't really that. In fact, like our view is we pay people based on the job. We don't pay people based on where they are. Um, and so for us, it was actually more about how do we acquire the best talent possible and regardless of where they end up being, right? And so... You know, we got lucky, you know, with a, with an early engineer, you know, who's actually a contractor for us in the beginning. Um, but the level of output was far beyond what we had seen on the team. I mean, it was, he was running circles around everybody. And so, you know, that for us was a really eye-opening moment where we said, we don't just have to sort of isolate ourselves to the U.S. There's, there's talent everywhere right and, and you know i'll admit sort of our blind spot on that but like once we once we met this engineer it was like okay well let's just find the best people wherever they might be um and so that that kicked off you know basically this geography agnostic hiring hiring process and what was the main challenge uh of having this distributed team across different time zones uh, continents was it something related to culture um, maybe employment you know compliance payroll or there were something else yeah I mean I you know it it sounds trivial but the um, yeah the employment compliance registration tax codes I mean you do have to be on top of that and What is challenging about it is when you're a startup, you probably don't have someone who owns that, you know, specifically. You probably don't have an accountant in-house. You probably don't have a finance person in-house. Definitely don't have a compliance person in-house. And so we leaned on our legal team, our outsourced accounting team, 
some of our own fact finding to figure out how we could make it work. And so, you know, we definitely had to take a lot of steps to, to make sure that we were operating in a way that was fair and compliant, but um, uh, that still still pretty challenging. Got it. Um, and I, I just have to ask this. Uh, you, you have raised this impressive 20 mil, right, in funding. So throughout your journey as a founder, you have emphasized the importance of capital being a commodity, right, while companies are rare. So could you could you share some insights into how this mindset has shaped your approach to raising funds for, for Tango? Yeah, and that mindset of capital being a commodity and companies are rare, it's, it's also a reminder to me that the most important thing is that we are building and growing and improving as a company. Um, you know, fundraising is not the goal. We always talk about that with the team. Fundraising is a means to reach sort of that next step of the long-term vision. Um, it can feel for founders to be sort of the, the, the stick by which they're measured. You know, how much money do you raise? Do you get to this round? Do you get to that round? But the reality is, you know, it's a means to an end. So when you see really big rounds, especially what's happening now with, with AI, you know, early stage companies raising hundreds of millions of dollars, that's because those business models are expensive. You know, it's not, it's not like, oh, they did a really good job at fundraising. So they got all this money. It's to operate the company, you need that, that amount of money. And so um, I always try to like steer people away from, from those vanity metrics. Um, I, you know, I think the other thing too, I often think about, um, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's speech around the man in the arena. And uh, it's it's great if you haven't ever read it. Very, very motivating. And sometimes if I ever need to pick me up, I'll just read it. But um, it basically celebrates the people that are in the trenches, getting dirty, doing the stuff that's hard, building, improving, setting the course. Um, those are the operators. Those are the people within the company. And so when I say capital is a commodity, companies are rare, I, I really am I'm, I'm reinforcing the importance of what we're doing day to day versus what a venture firm might decide that we're worth or a venture firm might decide that we deserve in terms of funding. Can investors be helpful? A hundred percent. And you always are looking for the one that can be really helpful. It can set you on a new trajectory, but that shouldn't necessarily be the expectation that an investor is going to change the course of the company. The company is going to change the course of the company. So that's always that's always where that comes from. It's not a it's not a dismissal of, of venture funding. Yeah, yeah, can't agree more with that. So, um, and probably my, my my last question: um, Could you maybe elaborate on on your future plans for Tango, how do you envision the evolution of the company in the maybe next couple of years? Yeah, so we, we have this underlying belief that the way companies use their tools, the way companies, you know, articulate their process and their knowledge, that's that's as much intellectual property as, as anything else. And I, I saw that firsthand at Uber. The way we operated is what made us successful. 
you know, it was, it was sometimes in spite of <laughs> some other things that we would do. And so we believe in a future where companies recognize that and they recognize how critical tools are to those processes and to those operations. And so, you know, for us, we basically want to be every company's sidekick to basically say, Hey, of the tools that you have, of the processes that you run, here's the best way to go about doing something. And that best way is informed by what your company's done in the past, what other companies are doing, what that specific product actually recommends doing. And Tango can kind of be that, that hub of what we call sort of like productivity intelligence to guide you on a path that you know maybe you wouldn't have found yourself. So the analogy that we use when we describe this very simply is we basically want to be the Waze app. The, it's, a, it's a navigation app. Uh, similar to Google Maps, but more crowdsourced, more bottoms up. We want to be the Waze app for the workplace so that wherever you are, whatever process you're doing, you're never unsure of where to go next. Um, so that's that's really the future that, that we anchor on. And that's awesome. Um, I guess I guess we're good. So uh, thanks a lot, <laughs> Ken, for sharing your insights on this international hiring, on remote first culture that you have in your company, on fundraising. Uh, thanks a lot. We wish you and Tanga all the best in your journey. I appreciate your time very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely.